Welcome to the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast. This is a special edition on one of our Knowledge Transfer Fellowships. Knowledge Transfer Fellowships within the CRE have been designed to dedicate specific time and resources to progress the application of new and established evidence related to cerebral palsy into practice. Today we are talking with one of our Knowledge Transfer Fellows, Claire Kerr, about her project that aims to develop resources to guide health professionals and parents and carers in the rehabilitation of children and adults with cerebral palsy following lower limb orthopedic surgery. Claire is joined today by Dr. Adam Scheinberg and Dr. Chenille Franch. So perhaps we can start by everyone just introducing themselves. Hi, um, my name is Claire Kerr. I'm a paediatric physiotherapist and a researcher um, based in Queen's University in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Um, And I've worked in research and practice with children and young people in CP for about the past 18 years now, um, both here in Australia, but also in the UK and Ireland. Hi, my name's uh, Dr. Adam Scheinberg, and I'm a paediatric rehabilitation specialist working in uh, Melbourne with the Victorian Paediatric Rehabilitation Service. Um, I've got around 20 years' experience working with um, children and adolescents and young adults with cerebral palsy, and I'm often involved in the rehabilitation um, following orthopaedic surgery. Uh, I'm Chenille Franch. I'm a doctor and a patient with cerebral palsy who's had uh, multi-level surgery in the past. I've been working with Claire, providing a consumer perspective um, and helping disseminate the findings of the fellowship by co-presenting at workshops. My name is Tessa DeVries. I'm the project manager for the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy. Um, So the initial scope of the project was um, looking at musculoskeletal um, rehabilitation protocols. And we initially had been very aspirational and we're looking at the upper limb, the lower limb and the spine. Um, But we quickly realized that we had bitten off more than we could chew. So we decided that we would focus then on lower limb outcomes um, and lower limb protocols because that formed the bulk of the orthopedic surgery that was actually being conducted. Um, We were aware that there were quite a lot of gaps potentially in the evidence and in the published literature in relation to post-operative rehabilitation. Um, So by picking an area that was really um, the most common type of surgery that was undertaken, we felt that we could address the concerns of um, the different audiences that we were looking to target as part of the project. What we see practically when we're providing rehabilitation after orthopaedic surgery is that um, there's often not a lot to guide us. Individual centres have protocols. But when we talk to our colleagues in in other states, the protocols are often different. And in some states, they're non-existent. And we also didn't have really good information to be able to give to families uh, before they were having their surgery um, to facilitate a discussion around their needs um, and what the outcomes might be after this sort of surgery. So we we had a few distinct phases then within the project. Um, and as Adam's alluded to, we, we weren't actually sure what was out there and what people needed. So the first element really that we went with was trying to establish the scope of the project and the needs of the different groups that we were trying to address resources at. Um, whenever we worked through that, and we'll discuss that a bit as we go along this morning, um, we realised then um, because of the absence of evidence that we actually had to look at really being very robust in how we evaluated the existing evidence for healthcare professionals. So we went through the process of synthesising that. Um, and then following the scoping and the synthesis of evidence, we worked towards developing resources and how we would actually try and implement those resources in practice then. 
Um, and really a, a critical part of this project has been the stakeholder and consumer involvement that's underpinned all stages um, of the project. Um, and, and without that, things would probably look and feel quite different from where we are at the minute with it. Okay, so let's talk about how you approach the project. Where did you start? So as we've just said, the, the first stage was a scoping um, aspects of the project. So we started off um, by scoping the needs of healthcare professionals and then scoping the needs of children and families. So in relation to healthcare professionals, we were lucky that at a previous conference, we were able to sit down with a group of healthcare professionals who were taking part in one of the conference workshops. So this really consisted of a fairly expert audience of physios um orthopaedic surgeons and um, rehabilitation physicians and so on. And we very simply asked them, what would your three essential components of a healthcare resource look like? Um, and what format would you like to receive that information in? So the healthcare professionals expressed the strong preference for evidence-based rehabilitation models, but they also expressed um, a need for specific exercise ideas. So they really wanted um, some information about how to be novel in their approach with clients um, because these children quite often have to go under um, a significant um, length of time with the rehabilitation and things get stale. So they wanted a, um, some good ideas for what was good practice. Um, other information that healthcare professionals sought was in relation to timelines. So expectations about where a specific child should be at at a specific point in time following their surgery. Um, per, the healthcare professionals also wanted information for parents and children. So they felt that there was a gap there and that they would were unhappy with the level of information that they were actually communicating with their clients. And the, and the fifth sort of big area then really that the healthcare professionals had tapped into was in relation to outcome measures, um, that they wanted to know what outcome measures they should be using and how often they should be using those. In terms of the format that the resources should take, um, the healthcare professionals expressed a very strong preference for having materials in electronic format and weren't particularly interested in hard copy resources. So that was what the health professionals um, had sort of expressed as what they were looking for. And um, what did you hear from the families about what would be useful for them? So the family process was really quite interesting. So we, we had ended up with sort of two distinct groups of consumers initially. We spoke to um, adults who have CP who reflected back on their experiences of having surgery as a child and as adults. And we also spoke then to parents of children with cerebral palsy who were going to be undergoing surgery or who had recently had orthopaedic surgery. And although there was a lot of crossover in terms of the information that we got back from both of those groups, there were some differences as well. So if we think, first of all, about the parents of children who had cerebral palsy and what they wanted to know before their child was going in for surgery. And there were four big themes really around that. The first was about communication. So parents were really keen that the different agencies that were involved in their child's care should communicate clearly with each other and with those parents. So, for example, between hospital and home, between health and education sectors, and then between different service providers that fell under each of those umbrellas. Um, a second theme then from parents of children with cerebral palsy um, was around the real practical elements of day-to-day -day care for their child after their surgery. So they wanted to know the, the, the really basic logistical stuff like how are we going to manage toileting? How are we going to manage getting around? Do we need any additional equipment? Are there any financial costs associated with this procedure? Is our child going to be in pain? How would we manage that pain? So it was it was the real things that are going to impact on a daily basis on their family lives. Parents also were quite concerned about school and reassuring them that 
their child would be able to return to school and any modifications that might possibly be required within the school, either physical modifications for the child to be able to access the curriculum or more practical things like how you're actually physically going to get there and is their child going to be strong enough, well enough, um, pain-free enough and fatigue-free enough to actually be able to engage in school. And the fourth theme then from parents of children with cerebral palsy was looking to the future and in the longer term. So parents wanted information about when they would be called back for checkup, if there was any likelihood of any further minor surgery being required for their child um, and what sort of recovery timelines they should expect. So the second audience then um, that we spoke to were adults with CP and they were reflecting back on their experiences as children um, and their experiences as adults who had surgery as well. The phrase that sticks in my mind most from these interviews was um, that whenever you're a child, post-op recovery and rehabilitation feels like forever. Um, and it was the way that these adults said forever that you knew they were never going to park that experience that they had, that it really was a very, very significant time in their lives. Um, the, the adults spoke about how difficult it was as a child to actually understand the commitment required to post-operative rehabilitation. Um, and they reflected back on their experiences saying that at times they felt perhaps that their parents had overprotected them in relation to pushing them um, for rehabilitation. They, they wanted to reinforce to, to people that there is no magic bullet were the words that they used and that in terms of rehabilitation, you do have to work hard, but you also have to work smart and make sure that your rehabilitation is targeted and focused um, and that you're addressing the areas that you need to be addressing. So it's not necessarily more is better, but it's more of the right thing is better. And they were very keen that we would um, bring that message across. Um, communication was a big um, element of the conversation with adults with cerebral palsy as well. And they reflected back, um, similar to the parents of children who were about to undergo surgery, that they wanted clear, consistent communication between the different agencies involved in care um, and that healthcare professionals should be both empathetic and sympathetic and sensitive in their conversations with families. And the final point then that the adults really brought across was that the risks and benefits of surgery should be fully discussed beforehand um, and that people should reflect that the outcome of their surgery affects not just the um, immediate post-operative period or the first two or three years post-operatively, but can actually have an ongoing effect in terms of the functional outcomes right through to adulthood and the opportunities um, that people may have. Um, following their surgery. So some people reflected on the fact that because they had missed a significant amount of school because of rehabilitation or where they were living after their surgery, um, then they had to maybe repeat a year at school and that had a, a, a knock-on effect on their both their education but on their personal relationships and friendships at that time as well. And Chanil, do you find that this information aligns with your own experience? Yes, quite perfectly, in fact. Um, so I found that the the post-op recovery was, in fact, forever. Um, and it, it took a lot of commitment. And I think that's not only from a, a personal perspective, having the surgery, but also um, the family's perspective. So it, it means a lot of time off school, a lot of time with your parents taking you to appointments for follow-up uh, for rehabilitation. But also it can be quite a mentally fatiguing process. And I think that's a key thing that um, we found both as part of this research and from talking to other families who have kids with CP, that the surgery can be quite daunting um, and you need 
a, a strong base of support for the whole family in terms of mental health. Um, from my perspective, I think the the risks and benefits should be fully discussed, and I think it depends on probably the age of the child as to how much they can understand. But if they're old enough as a teenager, I think that should be discussed with them because it has um, potential long-term impact, um, including time off school uh, and the the period of time lost with friends, I think was a big portion of that too. So did you engage children in this process as well? We did include children in the process. After we spoke to adult consumers, we developed a list of core questions that we felt um, really reflected the comments and concerns that the adults had. Um, we then bounced those questions back to that consumer group along with the draft answers so that they were happy that we had picked up the correct essence of their conversation. Once we were happy with that list of questions and the consumers had endorsed those, we then took them to the kids to make sure that it reflected the experience of the kids. So we sat down with a group of young people aged 8 to 19 um, and asked them to look through the questions and look through the answers to see if we had really addressed everything that would have been on their radar. And it was quite interesting because the kids had a couple of extra questions that the adults hadn't picked up on. And those were in relation to would the kids feel tired? Um, and really, it was reflecting on their experiences of being inpatients at the time of their surgery um, and that they didn't get a lot of sleep in hospital really was the message the kids were giving us. Um, and the second question that the, the children had come up with that their parents and adults with CP hadn't thought of was in relation to their looks. And would they be able to wear their usual clothes? Would they be looking any different from what they normally wear after their surgery? But in the main, the, the kids endorsed the questions and responses that the adults had put to us. Um, and really, I suppose the information really fell into five key areas. Um, you and your body, um, about getting home, um, getting back to school, questions about recovery and rehabilitation, and then what happens when things don't go to plan. Um, and that's really how we have, under those headings, scoped the, the resource that we're developing for families then. Um, additionally, and as well as the actual content of that resource, we asked kids, what sort of format would you like to get this in? Um, and we got a resounding, we would like a hard copy resource, but from both children and from families. Um, and we also showed children a range of different resources and materials that are available in different child friendly formats, um, ranging from rehabilitation resources through to leaflets about um, legal jargon and so on that have been produced in, in child friendly language. Um, so the kids gave us really good feedback about the visuals that they would like to see and how they would like the information presented. Um, and we've incorporated that into the final resource. I've seen the resource and it is really colourful. It's got these nice images, um, different sort of brightness and really plain language. So I think it sounds like you've sort of taken that message on board and really delivered a nice child-friendly resource. Yeah, I think that's quite an important point, Tessa, because um, we didn't set out to create a, a medical-based information sheet. Um, this doesn't look like a standard resource that you would get from a hospital in terms of how you prepare for your surgery or what your surgery is going to look like. It's a very consumer-driven child-friendly resource and really the, the, the feedback we were getting from parents was it's whenever kids are getting tucked into bed and they get the but mum what if 
question or mum what about question um, that parents want to be able to sit down with something that looks visually appealing with their child um, that is the conversation starter rather than the be all and end all answer to the question so the information is quite generic um, but it allows families to explore their own individual situation to reflect on that and then for um, to move forward within their conversations with healthcare professionals so that that information can be tailored and individualized for them. So reflecting on the resource and looking back at my experience, I had the surgery in 2006, which is quite a long time ago. Um, And being a 13-year-old, I had many of the questions that are uh, posed in this booklet. And there was no such resource um, back when I had the surgery. I was lucky enough to have a mother who was a GP and medically inclined. So if I had questions, I had her to ask. But coming from a not a non-medical family, I understand that there would be a lot of questions that would be asked. And this kind of resource really is really tailored to families to answer those questions at, at nighttime when you're in bed and you're sitting there wondering what happens next. Um, and I think it's just the, the value and importance of raising the question rather than answering it in this booklet is really imperative. So this process is nearly finalised and this family booklet will be available very soon in both hard copy and electronically. So keep an eye on our CRE website. So let's talk about the healthcare professionals. How did you identify their needs? So as as we discussed previously, we undertook a scoping exercise as part of a a recent conference um, and that really identified what they needed. And in addition to the scoping that we undertook in relation to what therapists and healthcare professionals wanted as part of their resource to guide post-operative rehab, we also wanted to establish what surgical procedures were being undertaken and what current rehabilitation practices were across Australia. Um, So we undertook a survey with the different surgical centres across Australia and contacted the physios who participate in that post-operative rehabilitation programme. Um, And of the seven centres that we contacted, we had information back from three of those seven centres. But those three centres that did get back to us constituted the places where the majority of the surgery is undertaken. So what type of surgeries are we actually talking about here, Adam? Uh, So Tessa, as Claire mentioned, when we started the project, we really were looking at a whole range of um, orthopaedic surgeries, including upper limb surgery. But we narrowed that down to lower limb orthopaedic surgery. And that could be divided broadly into two groups. So the first group is orthopaedic surgery around the hips, um, often uh, with the aim of making the child um, comfortable for sitting, uh, making sure that they don't get uh, pain in their hips uh, long term and that they've got symmetry um, for sitting. Uh, And a second group, which we sometimes term multi-level surgery, and that's where the surgery involves um, muscles and bones Uh, with the aim of trying to maintain or improve standing or walking. So it was broadly those two groups that we were looking at in this um, project. Okay, and where did you go after the survey? Um, So I suppose the survey was a real starting point for us in that um, it didn't give us a huge amount of information about what rehabilitation practices were, but they actually told us what surgeries were going on. Um, So we needed to then... understand what rehabilitation practices were actually happening. And as we've discussed previously, we were aware that there probably wasn't a huge amount of published literature in this area and that each centre potentially had their own protocols that were developed, but were not freely available or freely accessible across multiple sites. 
So because of the strong demand from healthcare professionals from the scoping surveys for evidence-based rehabilitation, we understood that we would have to go back and look at the literature and in a very systematic and structured way, try and establish what current rehabilitation practices were. So we undertook what's known as a systematic review, which is just a very, very organised way of looking at the published literature. So we searched multiple different health and medical databases for papers that looked at and reported on um, orthopaedic surgery in the lower limb for people with cerebral palsy aged under 18 years. The the papers that we particularly sought to um, extract information from um, were papers that reported rehabilitation practices. And from that, we mean physiotherapy or occupational therapy, um, orthotic use or equipment prescription. The papers also had to describe the amount of time people spent in rehabilitation. So either the number of weeks rehab, how often you went to rehab, how long your rehab sessions were. So some element of the quantity of time you were spending rehab or what your therapy dose potentially would be. And the third piece of information that we wanted that information, um, third piece of information that we wanted from that medical literature was what the actual components of the rehabilitation were. So we weren't happy if a paper simply described routine physiotherapy because that wasn't giving us any information about the actual elements of that person's rehab. We wanted it to be more explicit than that to tell us whether they were doing muscle strengthening, range of movement exercises, gait re-education and so on. So whenever we searched through the literature, Um, From about two and a half thousand papers that we came across to do with orthopaedic surgery in the lower limb in people with cerebral palsy, there were only 16 studies that described every element of what we were looking for in order for us to um, give informed information about rehabilitation practices postoperatively. So the systematic review findings um, spanned a huge range of literature, as you can imagine. So some of the studies just had one patient involved with them and others had right up to 85 patients. Um, so we had we had quite a range. Um, there was a bit of a split in terms of the different types of surgery. So most of the papers looked at patients who had multi-level surgery. So 10 of those 16 papers were looking at multi-level surgery. Um, And in terms of the rehab that people were having, um, well, the things that were most commonly reported were casting postoperatively, the orthotic use that people would be using. So the splints that they would use both during the day and at nighttime and then physiotherapy and physiotherapy became a bit of a catch all basket. um, And we wanted to actually tease out then what those elements of physiotherapy were. So the components of rehabilitation that were described most frequently were range of movement, muscle strengthening, and particularly in some of the better quality papers that were reported, they all reflected on using an intensive muscle strengthening program. Um, The other things that were commonly reported were gait education or gait um, training and functional re-education, but it was quite vague as to what that re-education was. Um, Lesser reported activities in the literature then were balance activities, use of equipment such as standing frames um, and encouraging people to participate in recreational physical activity to enhance their rehab. So other significant points from the systematic review were in relation to the therapy dose or how much rehab you actually have, as well as the content of rehab that we just spoke about. So in terms of how much rehab, we found huge discrepancies in the quantity of rehab that people were having. Um, so the for multi-level surgery, the smallest amount of 
rehab um, was 12 hours, whereas the maximum was 103 hours. Um, so obviously there are discrepancies from country to country and there are different cultural sensitivities around how much rehabilitation is available. But there was still big differences in terms of the amount of face to face time that people were having with therapists in relation to the rehab. Um, the other point then was in relation to the outcomes that are actually evaluated in post-operative rehabilitation. So quite often, whenever we're looking at how effective surgery is, the measures that we're taking are at the level of the child's body. Um, so we quite often do x-rays. We measure how much movement they have at their joints. Um, we run people through the gate lab and we look at their walking patterns um, and it's at very much at the level of the child's body and there's a bit of a disconnect there with what the goals of the surgery actually are when the goals of surgery quite often are to improve people's activity or to improve their comfort to improve their participation and to improve their quality of life and what we saw in the systematic review that we undertook is that there are very few studies that actually address those outcomes in fact none of the studies that were included in our review looked at quality of life or at participation of young people with cerebral palsy following orthopaedic surgery. So what does all of this mean for practice? So implications for practice, really the best quality studies that we had um, were all included um, intensive strengthening programs as part of their post-operative rehabilitation. So that would suggest that that's a key component of post-op rehab for children and young people who've had lower limb orthopaedic surgery. Um, what we need to look at as we move forward then is applying the learning in other fields to help inform that strengthening protocols um, and at the intensity that we should be applying those protocols at. Um, but we also need to get much better at documenting what we do, how often we do it and how we evaluate success of those programmes. Um, and by doing that, we'll be able to generate a stronger underpinning body of evidence that we can then move forwards and try and understand the relative benefit of the different components of the programme. So what information can health professionals expect as an outcome from this project? So we will publish the systematic review in the medical literature, but we'll also make a summary of that available through the CRE website um, for anyone to be able to access. Um, and coupled along with that, will provide some sort of structure around where we think people should be going with their documentation. And Adam, as a clinician, what are your thoughts on the implications of this? Well, I think until we get um, really good um, evidence um, and practice guidelines, we're going to see um, inconsistencies in outcomes. Uh, and so this is an area that really needs researchers to um, spend some time with. Um, and I'm hoping that CRE can support this work going forward. And Chenille? I think in the, um, from a consumer perspective, in the age of technology with internet and social media available, there's a wealth of information out there. And as a consumer, I think correct evidence-based medicine that's clear and um, prescriptive in terms of the rehabilitation goals that are provided would be very useful for um, rehab, especially uh, being a patient who's come from a rural setting where the services aren't wholly available, that would be really useful to go back home with. Tasha, I think it's important to note as well that this project really focused on um, fairly short-term um, rehab after the orthopaedic surgery. And there is a whole other scope of research that needs to be done for the rehab that continues often for months and months after this sort of um, surgery. I think that's a whole other area that needs to be looked at as well. 
Okay, so what we're looking out for now is this family resource and the systematic review, both of which will be published on the CRE website. So Claire, do you want to remind us of the key messages of this project? Thanks, Tessa. Yeah, the I suppose the take home messages really are that around post-operative rehabilitation following lower limb orthopaedic surgery, um, we've established that really there is a very limited evidence base in this area. And that presents challenges, but it also presents opportunities for us to be able to move forward and develop the field. Um, what was interesting as well is that the negotiation and the com- communication aspect of this. So um, these children, families and healthcare professionals are quite often navigating both acute care following their surgery and then moving into subacute care where their rehabilitation is ongoing. And that's couched then on a background of potentially lifelong rehabilitation or habilitation as well. And what we found really was that um, delivery of services quite often can be fragmented and that's difficult for both healthcare professionals and for families to be able to negotiate. So the third message really was around a potential disconnect between the needs of the consumer and the needs of the healthcare professional in this space. So the healthcare professional was seeking very rigorous evidence-based information, whereas the consumer was seeking a more child-friendly, pragmatic resource that would allow them to um, discuss their individualised needs with their healthcare professionals and with their child. Um, So there was a a bit of a discrepancy in that regard, but I think we've managed to bridge the needs of both groups with the evidence that's available at this time. Um, And really, I suppose the consumer involvement is something that really drove this project from the start and has underpinned every aspect of it. Um, And I think without it, um, it would be a very different project. And being a consumer, I'd just like to say thank you very much to Claire, because I think it's an under-researched area. Um, getting families involved in in their ongoing care and given that so much of it affects uh, their lives in the short term in terms of the family but also the patient themselves in the longer term uh, getting them involved from the beginning is a is a key step with information that they deem relevant so often clinicians have a different idea of what relevant information is um, but getting the families involved and finding out the real questions that they have I think is a key part of what we do in all sorts of medicine, uh, but particularly this multi-level surgery. So thank you. Yeah, and this knowledge translation program is one that the CRE is very proud of, and we're so pleased with the outcome of this project. So thank you, Claire. We know this has been a huge piece of work. Um, Do you have any last words? Thank you. (laughs) I think it's the first words that I obviously need to say that um, this was a great opportunity um, to work with a really lovely group of people on a project that I feel quite passionate about. um, That, as I mentioned at the beginning, I've been working in in the area of cerebral palsy and rehabilitation for quite a long time now um, in different places. Um, And it's, it's really interesting to see how we're moving towards really trying to understand the needs of families and, and addressing those in a very real way. And it's not that we didn't before. I think we're just much more conscious of it now. Um, I obviously need to thank the CRE for the opportunity um, to participate in this project, the advisory committee for their guidance and, and yourself, Tessa and Haley, for your support from logistics, because um, as some people will be aware, I've been doing this from the other side of the globe most of the time. There have been many late night Skypes and early morning Skypes, um, but through the gift of technology that we have, it's all been possible. Um, and I just want to fin- finish by saying a huge thanks to the children, the adults and the healthcare professionals that have engaged and contributed to this process because without their input, there wouldn't be a process. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast. Subscribe to this podcast using your favourite podcast app. To find out more about us, head to crecp.org.au. As the aim of this podcast is to transfer knowledge, we encourage you to share this with anyone who you feel may be interested. Trixie Studio.